everybody here. So one thing I love to do on this show is to create parallels between what's going on in the wider world and what's going on inside of us. And one of the, the big lessons that I take from things like this uh, banking crisis is that there is no escape from vulnerability. All right. You never get to completely graduate from vulnerability. And because we're all vulnerable, including nation states, including banks, survival has to be pretty much a top priority for an individual and for a bank and for a nation state. Right. And once a bank run starts or once there's some kind of big social movement against you, you are incredibly vulnerable, right? There, there may no, be no escape from some kind of substantial uh, bank run or the equivalent, right? The, the social, the social run against you. It's really, really hard to try to overcome that, and uh, you don't get to graduate from fear. You don't get to graduate from being deeply concerned about your welfare, and so. To me, this justifies being right wing because to be right. Lack of cohesion, social capital, social trust, you know, the, the filth inside of ourselves and the filth outside of ourselves just waiting to overwhelm, you know, anything good that we're building up. And I think that's a fundamental right-wing perspective that uh, life is inherently tragic, that, you know, horrible things are frequently threatening to overwhelm everything that we've built up. And so, therefore, we need to be on alert for that which will destabilize, destroy, damage those institutions and those good things that we've built up over many, many, many generations. And I don't think we ever... <laughs> get to graduate from that. The number one priority for a nation state has to be survival. Right? There Yeah, muting. Muting is sometimes a survival mechanism. So sometimes it is better to say nothing than to say something incredibly stupid. But uh, banks, all right? Anyone can go in and deposit money in a bank and there's no one simple solution that will just solve banking crises. There have always been banking crises. There will always be banking crises. And the government can never afford to be laissez-faire about banks. So Joe Biden hasn't significantly more nationalized the, the banking system than what was already there. No nation can afford to be blasé about the health of its banks just like no people can afford to be blasé about the, the health of the people. And you have to take demographics into account. You have to keep track of uh, threats. And uh, I've got the blood of Michael Dyer in my veins. All right, Michael Dyer was a great Irish rebel. Times, I believe, escaped from a British prison. He was finally exiled to Australia when he got old and worn down, and he, he died there. And so the biggest... The biggest uh, gravestone memorial in Waverley Cemetery, or was in Sydney, was for Michael Dyer. So he was a fighter, right? He was going up against the, the British. And there's no escape from the fighting nature of, of life. And banks are just inherently 
in a difficult position. So very interesting op-ed here by Martin Wolf in the Financial Times. Banks are designed to fail, and they do. This is a system that is essential to the fun- functioning of the market economy, but doesn't operate by the market economy rules, which is a, a great point, All right. Crisis by crisis, we have created a banking sector that is, in theory, private, but in practice, it is essentially a ward of the state. And there's no really alternative to this. We've got a system, banking system, that is essential to the functioning of the market economy, but it does not operate in accordance with the rules of the market economy. Because money is the stuff that everyone must have to meet their needs. This is true for individuals, households, businesses. So bank failures are calamities. But banks cannot be perfectly secure, right? They're supposed to have deposit liabilities, supposed to be perfectly safe and liquid, supposed to have assets subject to maturity, credit, interest rate, liquidity risk. They are fair weather institutions. We are all fair weather institutions, right? There's none of us who is without vulnerability. I've interviewed thousands of people, and the one thing that just jumped out at me out of, from interviewing thousands of people is how everybody is more vulnerable than you may imagine. You sense that uh, a poorly worded question hurts them, upsets them. Now, some people are much more vulnerable, you know, much more unstable than others. But we are all, to greater or lesser degrees, fair-weather institutions. In bad times, we all fail at many different things. Right? Anytime there's a bank run, anytime depositors run for the door, it's just over for the bank. And you will always need state institutions jumping in to respond to the inability. raise standards for how much money banks must keep on hand to pay off depositors, right? Raise those standards. Well, then banks have less money to lend out to business. So Silicon Valley Bank played a huge role in the the startup industry, right? They're absolutely indispensable for, for startups. Banking is always a risky business. Wall Street Journal. SVB isn't that unusual. Most depositor money is at work someplace else, so the possibility of a run is ever-present. By Nathan Mervald. March 14, 2023, 6.06 p.m. Eastern Time. Like many tech firms, my company and some of the startups we've created spent the weekend worrying as the fate of Silicon Valley Bank and its depositors hung in the balance. By Sunday, the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation announced that all was okay, no customers would lose any money. But the same day, regulators in New York shuttered Signature Bank for liquidity issues similar to those that felled SBB. Predictably, recriminations have already begun. I'm here to warn you that another bank could implode next. Indeed, just about anybody reading this could be at risk of losing everything over the FDIC's $250,000 deposit insurance limit. Which bank am I talking about? Why, all of them, of course. The fundamental business model of banking is that the bank accepts money from depositors and then invests almost all of it. Banking laws state that a certain amount of depositors' money, called reserve requirements, typically around 15% of the total, must be kept for redeeming customer accounts. The remaining 85% gets loaned out, often in long-term illiquid loans. If customers want to withdraw more than the bank has on reserves in a short time period, 
a death spiral may ensue. Right, and if people want to withdraw stuff from from you, all right, I I don't know, love, affection, attention, uh, money, uh, comfort, uh, protection, all right, a death spiral may ensue for you, all right? There's no way of getting around just how vulnerable we all are in life, and there's no escape from the vulnerability of the banking system, and there is no escape from any sane people and any sane nation state must always put its survival first. This is the Financial Times. Banks are designed to fail. And they do. Banks are designed to fail, and they do. By Martin Wolf. Banks fail. When they do, those who stand to lose scream for a state rescue. If the threatened costs are big enough, they will succeed. This is how... Crisis by crisis, we have created a banking sector that is in theory private, but in practice a ward of the state. The latter in turn attempts to curb the desire of shareholders and management to exploit the safety nets they enjoy. We have created a ba- the result is a system that is essential to the functioning of the market economy, but does not operate in accordance with its rules. Whoa, what happened to my audio? Oh, got it. My, my audio is failing me. Don't fail me now. Bloody hell. The system as a whole became, unambiguously, a part of the state. In return, capital requirements were raised, liquidity rules were tightened, and stress tests were introduced. All then would be well, or not. The failure of Silicon Valley Bank shows there are holes in the U.S. regulatory dike. That is no accident. It is what lobbyists called for, get rid of onerous regulations, they cried, and we will deliver miracles of growth. In the case of this bank, what stands out is its reliance on uninsured deposits and its bet on supposedly safe long-duration bonds. At the end of 2022, it had $151.6 billion in uninsured domestic deposits against about $20 billion in insured deposits. Okay, anyway, the the upshot is that uh, you'll always have bank failures, all right? Because anytime you've got a bank run, all right, no bank is going to be strong enough to survive, you know, some kind of massive, you know, social wave of uh, withdrawal upon withdrawal upon withdrawal. At that point, the bank has essentially two options. Option one is to raise money by selling investments. Selling investments at a loss, however, could push the bank closer to the point where it can't honor customers' withdrawals. Other clients who catch wind of this will understandably start to worry. Option two is to try to raise enough money to bridge its cash needs by selling equity and the bank itself. But doing that requires telling prospective investors details about the bank's situation, which might paint a picture of an institution in trouble. 
Silicon Valley Bank did both of these things. It sold $21 billion in long-term bonds, reportedly at a $1.8 billion loss. Right. So often when you admit your vulnerability, whether you're a bank, a nation state, a group or an individual, right, it is human nature to want to take advantage of other people's vulnerability. Now, it's also human nature to want to you know, rescue people and help people out. So it's not like we only have inclinations towards doing evil, but you have to be very careful with whom you reveal you know, your plain speaking. Elliot Blatt asked yesterday, What's the role for plain speech? Well, if you're a bank and you speak plainly, all right, about a little bit of liquidity difficulty you've gotten into, you're going to spark a massive bank run. If you're an individual and you speak plainly to the wrong people in the wrong context, all right, you'll, you'll spark a wave of social ostracism. So one has to be very, very discerning when one speaks plainly all right that's where it's good to have friends and uh, say mutually assured levels of destruction but then one friend may become say much more successful and therefore much more vulnerable than the other friend so yeah women detest weak banks yeah women detest weak men because women being the weakest sense have a much more visceral sense oh when i was walking around in australia for, for three months i'd never had a sense of, of fear, all right, because very low crime rates in, in Australia. But uh, come back to L.A., particularly get it on the subway in L.A., and it is an absolute horror show. Just just people passed out from drugs, feces, uh, an air of menace, people doing drugs, uh, gangbangers running wild. All right, the, the L.A. subway is an absolute nightmare. And so it just brings back that that sense of fear and vulnerability and we never get to graduate from that and there's no one solution that's just going to take care of the you know the banking vulnerability problem it's just inherent right societies first world societies must have a working banking system and that will always involve at times the state stepping in to guarantee deposits And so you can make banks more regulated and demand that they keep more deposits on hand to be able to pay off depositors, but then you reduce their ability to make money by lending out money to businesses who want to develop something. And so there's a tremendous price paid if you excessively regulate and excessively choose the cautious path and excessively demand that uh, banks keep you know, all sorts of reserves on hand. And then there's a big price to pay if you don't sufficiently regulate and sufficiently demand that uh, banks keep reserves. Forty, do you know what goes on with your audio? Is it the mic? There are just so many different settings. So I will follow the cues. So I find normally when I plug and unplug, that uh, that that seems to deal with things. But uh, I'll follow the cues in, in the chat. So I've got the microphone. Plug down to one board, my, my DBX board, and then it goes to my Focusrite board, and then it comes to my computer, and then it goes through uh, the, the Streamlabs. So there, there are just so many different uh, inputs and outputs, opportunities for things to go wrong. 
so I, I play a bit with the the threshold so if i have the threshold very low then you can get more background noise if uh, i turn the the threshold up higher it kills any background noise but then i can uh, i can just uh, if if i lose any any volume then the the whole system will will fail to pick me up so yeah audio quality number one challenge for any live streamer some people obviously jf P, to the best of my knowledge he's like the king but uh always need to live and learn just settings just equipment all right derek thompson here interesting article in the atlantic the end of Silicon Valley Bank and a Silicon Valley myth. We are still learning exactly how much of this industry's genius was a mere LIRP or low interest rate phenomenon. So to say that you think that uh, most of the tech industry's genius was just a low interest rate phenomenon seems incredibly shallow. All right. Uh, the future is primarily created in California. Right, California has its share of problems, but the future is primarily created in California, in the San Francisco Bay Area, in Los Angeles, and then to a secondary degree in New York City. Right, that's where the future is created. That's where you get cutting-edge innovation. All right, I mean, the iPhone gets substantially better each iteration. Like tech, you know, is is marching on. So the idea that uh, the tech industry's genius is a mere low interest rate phenomenon, right? I, I I just don't see that. Fearing cold approaching women is ingrained in our psyche, not just from Uncle Wally, says Media Hits. So who killed SVB and triggered the mini banking crisis sweeping the United States? You know who killed it? Reality. You know who's going to kill you? And you know who's going to kill me? Reality. Right. You know what's going to cause my absolute humiliation and breakdown? Reality. You know what's going to, you know, cause me, you know, deep pain, all right, when my conception of myself and what I'm capable of and what my opportunities are, you know, clashes with reality. And if I have assessed things incorrectly, reality is always going to win, right? You take your morals, right, and you bring them to bear in a battle against reality. Reality is going to win. Your vision right? Your vision versus reality. Reality is going to win. Events killed the Silicon Valley Bank. You know what's going to kill me? Events, my dear boy. Events. You know boy, a heart attack, a stroke, COVID. All right. You could blame the Federal Reserve for falling behind inflation and quickly raising interest rates. You could blame the Federal Reserve for bludgeoning investors as their board portfolios melt down. You can blame the regulators you can blame the auditors at KPMG who gave the Silicon Valley Bank a clean bill of health just a few weeks ago. You could blame President Donald Trump. Yeah, the situation's the boss. You can blame Senate Republicans, tech titans, bankers, even a handful of Democrats who rolled back mid-sized banking regulations in 2018, possibly setting the stage for this catastrophic mismanagement. You could blame... All right, here's a paragraph that I strongly disagree with. You could, abandoning all common sense, blame woke banking culture under the bizarre assumption that only an all-white or male banking team can properly steward a financial institution so anti-woke has nothing to do with demanding an all-white or male team woke means that certain groups should be immune from criticism 
that certain groups, such as blacks, women, gays, should be immune from normal levels of scrutiny, right? That's what woke culture means, that uh, blacks are sacred because they've suffered, maybe Jews are sacred because they've suffered, that uh, women are sacred because they've suffered, that gays and lesbians and queers and the transgendered, right, they should be immune from criticism, right? That's what woke means. Like, a lot of people think, oh, I don't know what woke means. But uh, woke means that certain groups, such as blacks, gays, women, should be absolutely immune from criticism. And so being anti-woke is to say that you believe that every individual, every group benefits from accurate criticism. Right? It has nothing to do with, oh, we must have an all-white, all-male banking team. Right? You can blame venture capitalists. But uh, the death of Silicon Valley Bank offers a strange lessons for venture capitalists, right? So it's the prisoners develop. If everyone dilemma, if everyone cooperates, keeps their money in the bank, all right, the bank's going to be fine. But if individuals seek their own individual advantage and pull their money out, then that will spur a banking collapse. So is there a broader rot in Silicon Valley itself? Right. Is this just the latest episode of the American tech industry struggling through three overlapping transitions? Right. First, there is the macro transition from an era of low interest rates that supported cash-burning consumer tech companies to an era of high interest rates that required discipline. Second is the existential transition from tech's dominance of attention, economics, and cloud computing to its expensive struggle to figure out the next mountain to climb. Third is the cultural transition from tech to a description of the biggest companies in the world. So all three transitions are creating a scarcity mentality in the Silicon Valley. Tech is shifting away from chasing green opportunities and expanding the pie to taking share in zero-sum contests for end users and concentrating on profits. So tech has spent years blasting the slow and stodgy government systems of the 20th century, only to cry out in times of need for the Fed, the Treasury, and the FDIC to bail them out and save the day. So how much of the tech industry's genius is mere low interest rate phenomenon? All right, that's uh, Derek Thompson there in the Atlantic. So you're probably wondering, what does Gren... Glenn Greenwood comes very widely watched and very popular. He's an outspoken advocate, not just on banking issues, but on many issues, including foreign policy as well. I've been on his podcast before, and I'm really delighted that he is now joining our show to talk about this obviously critical issue. All right, Glenn Greenwald, hey, you're supposed to be interviewing David Sachs here. Where's the bloody interview, mate? Here we go. David, good evening. Thanks so much for taking the time to chat. Yeah, good to be here. Good to be with you. Absolutely. So I want to obviously talk about the merit of the debate that led up to the government action and then the merit of the terms itself. But before I get into that, I want to talk a little bit about the politics of what just happened. As I'm sure you recall, most people, unfortunately, our age recall because we lived through it, the 2008 financial crisis in which there was a lot of very intense anger over the perception, at least, the federal government immediately acted to protect the country's richest people who benefited for years off the system. And then when the recklessness caused the collapse, they didn't pay any price, but to the contrary, they were saved with taxpayer money. And it seems like to a lot of people, even though there are important differences that we'll get into, some of which I mentioned, this is kind of a repeat in that, in that the world's 
Richest people on the other side of the coast, on the west coast in Silicon Valley, had their personal banks suddenly imperiled. They called on the federal government to save their deposits. And even though the shareholders and the bondholders and the executives got wiped out, the depositors got protected. Do you at least understand the perception that what keeps happening is that rich people benefit when they make winning bets and then have the government come in and save them when they make losing ones? Yeah, absolutely. I understand that that uh, that, that story and, and that pattern. And I understand that's why I'm on the hard end of this debate. I mean, I've been tweeting for a few days now, and there's a very angry mob of people fighting me on this. So I, I completely get it. Um, but I think there are important differences with, with 2008. Um, and I think a good place to start is, you're right, in 2008, the banking system was in peril. We were at risk of systemic failure. And when the Fed did intervene in that case, there weren't any bondholders or stockholders who were wiped out. And that was wrong. But this case is a little different. Uh, in this case, nobody's bailing out SVB. Okay, the bondholders are getting wiped out. The stockholders are being wiped out. The uh, executive stock options are being wiped out. The, um, you know, the CEO is going to be in litigation. The executive is going to be in litigation for years. They may have their stock sales clawed back. So nobody who caused this mess is... Um, is basically benefiting. Uh, they, their lives are basically ruined. Their reputations are disgraced. The question is depositors and what you do with deposits. And you know, I noticed in your introduction, you described the behavior that the depositors of SVB engaged in as gambling, like they've been in a casino. And this is where I push back. Well, well to be clear, I, I was referring to the, to, the, to the people who ran the bank, not, not necessarily the depositors. But okay. go ahead. Yeah, fair, fair enough, fair enough. And I think you understand the situation. Uh, but but you know, it's, it's a very common description now in the media. I think the common narrative is that somehow. Uh, the, uh, the depositors or the customers of SVB were doing something inordinately risky. And I think it's important to understand that, th that startups may be risky, but they didn't, that's not why SVB, SVB failed. SVB failed because it basically uh, uh, invested in a bunch of mortgage bonds that went toxic. And the startups had nothing to do with that. Okay? The only decision that startups made was to, was to basically open a checking account, open a deposit account at SVB. And so their question comes down to, are you going to hold depositors liable for basically a bank that had a regulatory seal of approval, that was blessed by the FTC, that passed all its regulatory exams. In fact, it had an A rating from Moody's just a week ago. Are you going to hold depositors liable in that situation? And my view is no. And I think if we could just separate that issue, then I think everyone would understand that if we had a different set of depositors here, no one would even be debating this. If it had been 40,000 farmers, for example, small business farms who were depositors, and this bank wasn't called Silicon Valley Bank, but Farmers Bank, I don't think we'd be debating for a second that those depositors shouldn't be responsible for a regulatory failure, because this is what this was. And I think it's because there's so much animosity towards tech and the tech industry. And I get it. You know, tech can be insufferable. And especially for people on our side of the aisle, uh, you know, they're repressing speech and doing woke, stupid stuff that we hate. So I totally get the anger. But uh, but but I do think. OK, interesting to get that perspective there from David Sachs. Wonder what Tucker Carlson has to say Good evening here. And welcome to Tucker Carlson tonight. Most people got poorer during the covid lockdowns, probably poorer than they realized. They're finding out now, unfortunately. But the tech companies got a whole lot richer. And it's simple. Why? Politicians forced the entire population indoors at gunpoint. So millions of people had no choice but to live out their lives in the lonely hell of the Internet. That turned out to be a disaster for America, as rising suicide rates now attest. But for Silicon Valley, it made for an epic payday. And that epic payday was soon reflected epically on the balance sheets of its biggest local lenders, which was called Silicon Valley Bank. In 2018, SVB had about $49 billion on deposit. Three years later, that same bank had amassed more than $189 billion. That is a gargantuan increase in deposits over a very short period of time. It was certainly dramatic enough to have raised a very serious question, and an obvious one. What was Silicon Valley Bank going to do with all that money? Even in the San Francisco Bay Area, it would be hard to find qualified borrowers for $189 billion. You could not responsibly loan all of that money, even if you wanted to. So what would you do with it? Now, that's the question you would have asked if you were paying attention, both from inside SVB or from the federal regulatory agencies in Washington. 
But it turns out nobody was paying attention. Nobody thought to ask that or many other questions. Nobody thought to stress test Silicon Valley Bank in the middle of a boom. And of course, that turned out to be a grave mistake. But the remaining question is, what were they doing at SVB and at the other banks that have either failed or come close to failing over the last week? Well, they were doing what you would do if you were a mediocre but highly credentialed, irresponsible person with a narcissism complex who talked a lot about your ultra marathons and your commitment to climate change. If the central bank handed you trillions of dollars free with no strings attached, you would party like it was 1999. Or to update the reference, you would virtue signal like it was 2023. You would spend hundreds of millions of dollars bragging about what a good person you are. And that, of course, is exactly what they did. Consider Signature Bank. Now, Signature Bank was shut down by federal regulators this weekend on Sunday because it posed an imminent threat to the entire financial system. Its demise marked the third largest bank collapse in American history. Why did Signature Bank fail? We could give you the technical math-based answer, but here's the real reason. Signature Bank failed because it was corrupt. That's a strong charge. How do we know that? Well, simple. Its directors gave Barney Frank a board seat. That's it. Frank is the same person who was a member of Congress from Massachusetts, wrote the banking regulations imposed on Signature Bank and all the other banks by Washington after the 08 collapse. Barney Frank has never had a real job. He has spent his entire life in politics. He's elderly now, but he has no relevant experience or expertise. So the only reason that Signature Bank hired him is because he once regulated Signature Bank. Now, if we were looking at a foreign country, we'd describe that instantly as what? A payoff. The people who actually ran Signature Bank, meanwhile, the so-called bankers, did not seem to spend a lot of time banking. And of course, they didn't need to bank, really, because the Fed was guaranteeing them a never-ending torrent of cash in the form of free money. So what did they do? Well, here is Scott Shea, the chairman of Signature Bank, welcoming his employees to a meeting of the bank's critical pride council. This video is from last December, just months before Signature Bank slipped beneath the waves. And the Pride Council in question, as you will see in a moment, featured a self-described genderqueer transmasculine person called Finn Brigham, who arrived to teach employees about pronoun use. Watch. I'm Scott Shea, chairman of Signature Bank, and it is a pleasure for me to welcome you to this multimedia, multicasted, multispatial meeting of the Pride Council. And I'm just thrilled that there are about 40 people in the room. I understand there are something like 190 people at watch parties. So hi to you all at the watch parties. You know, the most common pronouns that folks are familiar with are she and he. Becoming much more common, and I, you know, I don't know if there's anyone in the signature bank world, but probably you have clients that use they, them as pronouns. Um, they're gender neutral pronouns on purpose. We talked about folks that are non-binary that intentionally don't identify as male or female. So some of those folks use they, them as their pronouns. Z is another gender neutral pronoun. Um, and the other part of that would be here, spelled H-I-R. Scott Shea is just thrilled to introduce the genderqueer trans masculine pronoun expert and to host watch parties so everyone else can watch him explain pronouns. What do they pay that guy? What did they pay that guy? How much will they have to pay you to swallow your dignity, to completely eliminate the possibility that your children would ever respect you in order to put on a performance that embarrassing? Probably a lot. We don't know what he was paid. Clearly a lot. Clearly the bank got a lot of money because trans pronoun experts are not cheap at all, but Signature did have a lot 
of cash, of course, because the Federal Reserve was printing it. And they got the first pass. This is what low interest rates for 13 years means. So again, this was going on four years. Here, for example, is Signature Bank's music video. Did you know banks made music videos? Of course they did. They didn't know what else to do with the money. This one is from 2011. Sorry, it was a dance party at Signature Bank. Bank. Like there was banking going on. It was a dance party at Signature Bank with pronouns. And that's not the only video from Signature Bank like that. You can go online and find many others, including their Broadway-inspired sketches. You could spend all day watching these videos we just did and are better off for it. But it's not just Signature. The guy who ran Signature was really craven and repulsive, but he's not alone. No one at any of these banks seemed to spend a lot of time banking, which the rest of us believed was the core business of a bank, but no. In fact, at Silicon Valley Bank, only a single member of the board had any experience at investment banking. The rest were silly rich ladies. The Daily Mail reports that every other member of the board was an Obama or Clinton mega donor. One silly rich lady was such a sensitive soul, of course she was, that she had to go to a Shinto shrine to pray when Donald Trump won in 2016. We looked up her picture. She doesn't seem like a native-born Shinto, but whatever. There was a lot of fashionable rich girl politics underway at Silicon Valley Bank, but banking, not so much. SVB had no head of risk management for nine months in the year before it collapsed. Ooh, guess someone should have been paying attention, but no. They're visiting Shinto shrines and having dance parties with their pronouns. Meanwhile, Silicon Valley Bank UK, that would be the UK arm of Silicon Valley Bank, in case the name didn't give it away, did have a head of risk management. Unfortunately, the head was called Jay Ersapa, who didn't seem to know a lot about managing risks or care. She talked mostly about herself because it's so, so fascinating to talk about yourself a lot. Me, me, me. Enough about you or risk management. Let's talk about me. And she did. At one point, she described herself as a, quote, queer person of color from working class background. Oh, yes. Narcissism is so much more fun than banking. So needless to say, the risk manager was working hard on LGBTQIA plus 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 rights. How did that end? How does it work if you run a bank like this with people who just talk about themselves and their identities as if those are interesting topics? Well, this week, Silicon Valley's UK banks, UK branch sold for the fully publicly disclosed sum of $1, $1 for the bank. But as you would imagine, in a bank where nobody cared about risk management, the collapse was pretty entertaining for the rest of us. Of course, there's a tragedy at the core that imperils the entire Western economy. But the good news is we have videos like this. This is a video that SVB put out days before it went under. I think there's a big disparity between the investments in black-led companies than other companies. We want to help close the Latino wealth gap. Oh, ho, ho, more 
entitled people talking about themselves. Let's talk about me and my identity. It's so interesting. Banking is boring. The Fed's got that covered. Is this starting to scare you a little bit? This is what banks are actually like? And we don't want to alarm anybody or get censored by Senator Mark Kelly of Arizona, who is now on the record saying he does not want you complaining about banks. But we should tell you it's not just signature SVB officials who talk like that. J.P. Morgan, that's the biggest bank in the world, we think, as of tonight, one of the few banks that consumers still have some confidence in, put out a whole video about how they give out money, not on the basis of economics or math, but on the basis of irrelevant characteristics like your appearance. They're judging the book by its cover. Watch. The events of summer 2020 highlighted long-standing inequalities, particularly among the Black, Hispanic, and Latino communities that has had a significant impact on our country. At J.P. Morgan Chase, a key goal is to help break down systemic barriers that have created profound disparities. That's why we committed $30 billion towards racial equity to provide resources and opportunity for our Black, Hispanic, and Latino communities. We've invested more than $100 million in minority-owned banks across the country and are building a more equitable and representative workforce. We're committed to racial equity. <laughs> Wait a second! Am I getting a moral lecture from a bank? From a bank? Really? A bank is telling America... How to live? Describing America's sins? You're a bank. Where's the left, by the way? 90 years ago in the 1930s, the last Great Depression, nobody would have sat still from a moral lecture delivered by a bank. But they're very common now. Why? Well, a little history. After 2008, a movement emerged called Occupied Wall Street. At the time, it was at the cutting edge of left-wing social activism. And it did seem kind of organic. Most of these things are completely fake, like BLM, obviously orchestrated. But Occupy Wall Street seemed kind of real. It seemed like angry people. And some people from Occupy Wall Street... A question in the chat, have I gone to the bathroom? No, I was quite enjoying, thoroughly entertained and provoked and compelled by Tucker Carlson's production there. I mean, he is compelling. He is fun to watch. So, no, I I found uh, Tucker quite interesting. That's why I let him run. But there's a great question in the chat here by my friend Elliot Blatt. And he says, how can people not burst out laughing at, at all these wokesters? But uh, guess what? How can people not burst out laughing at each of us? All right. Just imagine that there's video of you, you know, taking a wank. All right, you look, uh, you look pretty silly. Uh, just imagine, you know, a compilation of, you know, all my audio lowlights. I mean, we are all worthy of mirth. We are all acting and speaking and conducting ourselves in a way that uh, other people will find hilarious. We're all self-deluded. So it, it's not like, oh, the wokesters, all right, they're silly, they're crazy, they're stupid, right? They're nonsensical. But we're all silly, all right? We're all idiots. We're all deluded. We all have an exaggerated sense of our own importance. We're all vulnerable, right? If you're in in a public space and there's no publicly available bathroom around, 
right? You get to get into a state of like extreme uh, pain and, and anxiety, right? I mean, every bloke looks ridiculous, you know, when he has a wank. Ward, can you comment more on Tucker? I mean, Tucker is lowbrow, lowbrow, you know, hate porn, outrage fuel. And he does it great, and he makes some some good points. So he's he's tremendously entertaining. But there are plenty of businesses that are woke, that are prospering, right? So what I'm struck by is how every political side sees you know, this banking crisis through its own particular prism. So people on the right say, oh, this banking crisis is because of woke culture. But Tucker Carlson's segment is entertaining, but that's not the, oh man, Tucker, Elliot's on the call and I can't even, Elliot, that's my fault. Let me get my settings right here. Why can't I hear? Oh, speakers. Oh, there we go. Let's see. Okay. Um, let's see. Oh. Okay, uh, Elliot Blatt, you're on the air, bro. Ah, now... I, uh yeah i've got one more mistake that i need to figure out this is on my end so okay try it again now Elliot. how about now can you hear yep. me now can you we me can now? hear you now bro thank okay. you so much what's going on all right guess what i learned over the week i learned today what'd you learn bro well not only the company i work for but also um our sort of key partner supplier uh had deposits with SVB. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, it's quite likely that my job was indirectly tied to uh, SVB being bailed out. Yeah. And you changed and my tune, bro. Tens of thousands <laughs> of people. Yeah. Yeah. But I was among them. Not in a huge way. I mean, we could possibly have survived, but it would have been a massive hit. Um, that was sobering. And amusing. Uh, uh, what do you think about my point? You said, how can people not laugh at these wokesters? But are they really substantially that more ridiculous than you or me? No, they're not. They are. They're substantially more. Ridiculous. So if we if we got some video of you having a wank, you don't think that yeah. would be funny? Oh, no. I'd look like Caesar, bro. <laughs> I'd like cro Caesar crossing the uh, Rubicon. I would have looked powerful. <laughs> How do people look like Caesar while tossing one off? Well, it just depends on your equipment, bro. And and your sense of mastery. I mean, yeah, you, yeah. so you're able to stay composed, like yeah. even when you're rubbing one out. Yeah, I, I look like I'm contemplating battle plans, you know. But but when that 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 glorious moment is 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 coming. All right. And yeah. like, and it's like all feeling in your body is just like disappearing to one, one part. Yeah. And you're just on the verge of absolute ecstasy. I mean, you don't lose your composure. No, I just, I'm made out of wood. Totally made and, out of wood. And what, totally do you, what do you <laughs> tend to scream out? Because I tend to scream <laughs> out victory to the forces of democratic freedom. But what do you tend to scream out? I scream out. I'm coming back here a thousand times if I have to. <laughs> exactly. So right. you look like you're planning the invasion of Russia. Yes. I look steely, just like Putin. 
Just doing business, wow. bro. Just doing business. I can't even imagine that. I mean, you have achieved like a level of self-mastery that the rest of us mortals can can only... Well, I like to lead in the way that I, in the way that I know, you know, everyone's good at something, Luke. What about <laughs> when you're dying to go to the toilet and you're in a public space and there are no public restroom facilities around? Oh, you know, how, how do you, how I, I do you... turned into this, I turned into an absolute whiny little bitch, Luke. It's unbearable. It's the worst. It's one of my greatest fears. And, uh, you know, I've, I've built in, um, uh, who is this Gunner Limbloom is too alpha? He's, he's your he's biggest fan. fan, bro. Yeah, yeah. It's I tough love. Uh, <laughs> I don't know. I don't say uh, that much. Well, you know, it's you know, uh, no, I I have to compose some jokes. I can't. I'm not super quick. I can't like. That's not what I hear. I hear you're really quick. I'm just rattling them off, you know. Uh, but it, it did remind me of a story about bursting out laughing. Okay. Like, like, uh, so once upon a time back in Boston, there was this fad going around where, you know, performance art, like performance art gatherings, there was this thing called like noise art. Have you heard of this? And uh... it's like, it's like people would play audio and it was just recordings of ambient noise, you know, like, refrigerators going the buzz and whirr the sort of everyday machinery of the life you know just this just background noise essentially you know and so so this woman put on this show and she invited me and i i you know it was all her artsy friends and so forth and it was a very big and solemn occasion and i was invited and I get in, and in one minute, I hear the performance. It's just like, you know, like minute after minute. I'm thinking, no, this can't be what I'm hearing, you know. And everyone's got this rapt attention, you know. They're 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 like taking it like they're in church, you know, and they're taking it with a lot of solemnity. And I'm like, you know, busting up inside. I cannot. I just I can't like contain myself. And yet somehow I'm managing to do it. I managed to contain my laughter and then i finally look over and i see someone i know and our eyes meet and that's the trigger you know and then i just completely lose control and i have to like just stumble and stagger out of the gallery you know because i'm laughing so hard i can't like i can't put i can't pretend anymore you know so i just but i didn't want to hurt anyone's feelings so i just had to like quickly just stagger out of there and get out of there and, and not offend anybody. Of course, I offended everybody. And I think that's what's going on during these sort of woke indoctrinations. People are just, you know, their whole livelihood is tied to just not laughing, you know? Because <laughs> if, 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 they, if they start laughing, they could lose their jobs. It would be construed as some sort of aggression or workplace violence. I, I actually pity the people, but... Have you, you ever, ever experienced a dynamic where you have to like hold, contain your laughter? Oh, all, all the time. I mean, when I date the, the classier type of women, they, they're concerned that I that I laugh at inappropriate things. Elliot needs to work on his diction, bro. Okay, Gunner, call in and dazzle us with your uh your diction. Okay. I want to hear that 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 galaxy brained IQ you have. We want to hear 
We want to hear what you got, bro. Whip it out, my dude. Have you ever <clears throat> raw dogged it with a woman who's not on the pill? And so you had to, you know, exercise that that you know supreme discipline to withdraw before you make a baby. Uh, have you found that challenging, or are you been able to maintain your Putin-like visage? No, look, I I see my my seed as a gift, and I, I like to just share it. I, I can't I can't I can't deny anyone my essence in that that sort of selfish selfish way okay and and would you be off to would you be off to like perform sex in a club you know and have like a hundred strangers watching you uh that would be hard for me Luke. why uh i'm a new englander at heart you know i'm quite modest yeah your, but... your natural reticence yeah is you know all those thank you notes <laughs> <laughs> just it would, i would be burdened by thinking about it. have you ever gone to an orgy <laughs> sadly no Luke. no <laughs> the whole the whole thing grosses me out the whole idea would gross me out like because of know, all the man. thank you notes <laughs> not because of the thank you notes but the, that would certainly be a drag too but it, just the uh nature of the experiences just seems kind of greasy bro not to mention the monkeypox. What about a threesome? That's a bit more manageable. A bit more manageable. If it was, if it was you, another woman, and another dude, that wouldn't happen. <laughs> Would that make you feel uncomfortable? <laughs> Highly. Then my monkeypox alarm would be blown. You know, would be sounding. Be very difficult. What's it like for you as a presumably heterosexual man? Now living in a city filled with a Pres flourishing gay community. <laughs> it's hard. It's terrible, actually. Um, but that you have access to so many more women? <laughs> no, it doesn't work like that. Um, you would think, you know, what it means is, is there's just lots of gay men rolling around. Lesbians can't afford to live here. So it's just it's, I would guess that the, I probably, it's probably 60, 40 men to women in San Francisco, if I had to guess. And uh, have have your thoughts on bailing out Silicon Valley Bank been, your thinking on this issue being affected by knowing how vulnerable you are to the Silicon Valley disaster? It has, um, oh, sorry, I said, oh, I guess Gunner's going to have a little shit fit. Um, uh, so I just, the analysis that you played earlier is interesting. It's not like the depositors to this bank were taking risks. an unreasonable risk. They were just you know? like letting my, they were depositing money in a bank and getting like 1% or 2% back. I mean, it's yeah. not exactly risky behavior. Yeah, I mean, it was and, like they were entering Silicon Valley, like triple bagged. I mean, that's not risky behavior. Yeah. You triple bag it. I don't care what you say. I don't care how controversial it is. You wrap it up three times in your father's flags. To me, that's not risky behavior. Let them cry to heaven. <laughs> I was looking at the audio. <clears throat> yeah. Um, but where did the money go? Is my question. There's like, I don't 
it didn't go anywhere. They bought long-term U.S. Treasuries, which are a very solid uh, investment. But then the value of those bonds uh, yeah. decreased when interest rates went up. And so they would have been fine, except they suddenly had a bit of a run on the bank. So they had to sell the Treasuries at a loss. Yeah. So in a way, the Fed is you know vaguely responsible um but it's it's not like with sam bankman freed right people invested it, well, well what was it alameda research did all of these speculative investments yeah they it wasn't lost like that yeah. other people won right so the money just changed hands and went into another person's hands right it's a temporary liquidity shortfall because I mean U.S. Treasuries are good investments, but if you you know have to sell them early, right? Then then you're screwed. But it's not like this went. Oh, well, to... hold on, Gunner's Gunner's got some uh, Gunner's got some advice here. Luke, the bank should have hedged its interest rate risk. Of course, yes, it should have. Yeah, they should have called up Gunner and said, Gunner, how do we hedge this interest rate risk? I hear you're on the YouTube a lot, and I think you're you you have some great banking insights. So you know why didn't they call Gunner? Yeah, sad. You know? It's just sad. It's like the resources are right there. They could have Googled it. Like, which live stream has the best chat that knows the most about banking? And you would have been the number one on the list. And they would have found Gunner, and they would have known what to do. And this never would have happened. What about my, my big overarching point on tonight's stream that uh, we'll always have banking crises. There's no you know one strong solution that takes care of this or there are a different choices with different downsides and we're all just incredibly vulnerable. You're vulnerable, I'm vulnerable, even Gunner is vulnerable. Like yeah. Gunner has the most ridiculous face in the world when he's wanking. So yeah, yeah, he doesn't look like me. He's not in a chest. No, no, he yeah. doesn't look like Vladimir Putin combined. You know, like he doesn't look like Vladimir Putin mounting Julius Caesar. <laughs> no, not at all. Not at all. Uh, not at all. No, not even vague resemblance. Uh, yeah. So, but you know, like I always think I understand the Federal Reserve, but then it turns out I really don't understand it. Like, it's this mysterious entry that can just will money into being it seems, and then feed it into banks, then the banks make loans and everything just kind of happens. Um, it's very ephemeral, this this whole Federal Reserve. Do you understand it well? I don't understand it well, but what I do understand is vulnerability, bro. You know, I'm vulnerable. Like, I got my, my weak points. I, I can get hurt. You know, if you prick me, I, I bleed. And you're vulnerable. And like we live in a highly vulnerable world. I mean, California, much of it could, you know, fall off the map in an earthquake, you know, any, any minute now. Um, vulnerability is just an essential part of life. And I think wisdom is recognizing how vulnerable we are, which should help us to be a little, perhaps a slightly little bit more empathic to, you know, other people, but also, you know, making sober decisions to, create as much safety as we can for for you know ourselves and our loved ones given that we live in a you know chaotic uh, vulnerable scary frightening world yeah like a couple of weeks ago this woman was walking in the park in a tree and this 
just fell over and took her out. Yeah. You, know, you never know at any moment. Game over. Right. And so you may think that, you know, you're invulnerable. Like, uh, I don't know. You may not have these bipolar tendencies that I do, but I've kind of spent much of my life rolling between feeling invulnerable and that, that there will be no consequences for anything I say or do. And then rolling down and feeling like, you know, it's absolutely hopeless that, that you know, it doesn't matter what I say or do, I'll, I'll never get myself out of this mess. But uh, I don't know, what, where are you? Do you have these bipolar swings? Sort of, yes. And I'm thinking about the time I broke my arm skiing. Like, I was feeling invulnerable up until it happened. I, I was just sort of had this I was really feeling good about myself, you know, and I suddenly all this con this confidence and this confidence kept going up and up and up, but it then sort of bridged upon hubris. There's like this fine line that, you, that I seem to have crossed. And then, um, uh, then I was just struck down by Zeus. And it, it, then uh, it was just pathos. Like it, it was so funny how like how how it was the swing from high to low that was so devastating. You know, I went from you know feeling on top of the world and feeling all this energy and vibrancy, and then the next thing I know, I'm sort of hobbling across the parking lot trying to take off my ski boots with one arm because I'd broken the other one, and then I had to have someone help me. So I was very vulnerable, and luckily someone came to my aid. But I, when when I was in Sydney, I desperately, desperately needed a toilet, and the, there just wasn't a public one around. And as I'm like, you know, motoring down the street as as rapidly as I can without, you know, wetting myself, I see this old man wandering into traffic, and I mm. was so desperate to find a bathroom, and because I've come from Los Angeles, where people are wandering into traffic all the time, yeah. I, I just kept going. And, yeah. you know, luckily this, this woman in a, in a, you know, hair salon came out and grabbed him and said, you know, what's going on? What are you doing? But I was so desperate to pee. I couldn't, you know, look out for this guy who could very well have been killed. My, you know, my desperation to pee, you know, may well have been the difference between that man living and dying. Well, I, th I think you made the same choice I would have made, sadly, which doesn't speak well of me, but yes, there are priorities and, Sometimes you got to break an egg, you know, you got to, if you want to make an omelet, you got to break an egg here and there. Do you, do you see people wandering into traffic? Like I've even stopped oh. yeah. I, I, when I'd stand, you know, waiting for the walk sign and usually, you know, someone who's not, uh, not of European ancestry um, is like wandering into traffic. Uh, I used to try to stop them, but I've largely given up. How about you? Well, I, I call this phenomenon going all in. And it happens, it used to happen to me a lot more, but I just avoid those parts of town where, you know, where I avoid the parts of town where people bring a, a dead raccoon to a McDonald's, you know? That's sort of the, the correlate that I'm looking for. If that can happen, then wandering in the street can also happen. So I avoid those parts of town. But yes, this guy would jump out in front of me and just starts, you know, like just kind of, uh, quote unquote dancing but just throwing his arms up and down and kind of looked jubilant but he just jumped right in front of my car and i had to just slam on the brakes to not take him out and if i you know if i had just been a little less attentive i probably would have killed him and then 
I went from being glad I didn't kill him that I wanted to kill him, you know, for doing such stupid, selfish act like that. So, yes, I know what you're talking about. And what about bicyclists? I hate when I'm driving down the street and there's a bloody bicyclist, like taking up the whole lane. Mm. You know, I'm stuck behind a bloody bicyclist, but I don't like driving around and having to not run into bicyclists. Bicyclists on, you know, streets that God created for drivers. They bug me. I, I, I share the sentiment as a former bicyclist myself, you know, I was never one of these sort of, uh, oh, I said, oh, Gunner's going to freak out. Shit. Uh, one of these guys that's always just righteous about it. They're so selfish. They're self-righteous about their riding a bike and me being this disgusting car driver. You know, they're just so smug and condescending. And eventually one of them gets taken out and then come to find out um you know, he was doing something stupid traffic wise, you know, they don't take responsibility. They don't connect the two. And then they, they, they put up these, these, do you know what these ghost bikes is this down in LA? They take a, they take a bike, paint it white, completely white. And then they sort of like, they, they lock it to a tree or a pole. And then they put a sign on it. So-and-so was killed here on a bike. Right. Do they have that in LA? Is that purely? I'm not sure. Yeah. So there's all these memorials of, of bicyclists and where they've been killed and it's all meant to sort of shame drivers but there's no sort of uh bicyclist education or there's no self-policing in the in the bicycle bicyclist community cycling community um so yeah I, i'm with you bro i hate i hate bicyclists i even made a post about these scooters these electric scooters and they pass you on the right you know because they can, you're in slow traffic and then they'll pass you on the right, but you're not accustomed to looking to your right-hand side before you make a right-hand turn. You just assume nobody's coming up on you on the right, right? Cars don't pass on the right, they pass on the left. So you're not accustomed to looking for anybody passing on the right and you could easily cut them off, you know? <clears throat> and um, that happened to me. I almost took a guy out and I felt like chasing him and then really taking him out. It's very... It's very, it's a, it's a roller coaster of emotions. And then what happens when you're, you're dating and you're having regular delicious sex with, you know, very attractive Jewish woman, but she likes to ride her bike on Santa Monica Boulevard and she likes to go on vacations to Mexico. And so she goes on a vacation to Mexico. You know, I'm worried she's going to get kidnapped and raped by some drug cartel. And then she likes to ride her bike on Santa Monica Boulevard. You know, and I'm concerned that my precious, you know, my precious, I mean, just this little, cute, just adorable, smart. I never had to explain myself to this woman. Did I mention we used to have regular fantastic sex? I mean, she was down for sex. I mean, succulent sex, nasty sex, loving sex, every type of sex you could imagine, like no holes barred sex. All right. And yet this beautiful, lithesome creature likes to ride her bike on Santa Monica Boulevard, you know, at any time she could get plowed, you know, by some, you know, illegal immigrant without insurance, you know, in, in a pickup truck that doesn't have proper brakes. And I mean, that's not easy, bro. Well, look, at least she's not racist. Well, no, I mean, I mean, plowed as in run over by a truck, not plowed as in her furrow getting plowed. Oh, sorry, bro. I got confused. I, the stories all bleed together. 
So yeah, I don't know how you should feel. Yeah, you should feel anxiety. I mean, your uh, my precious, your precious supply could be um, my precious. In I a mean, wheelchair. It's not... and that's the last thing LA needs is another person in a wheelchair. Yeah, and like, what if she was in a wheelchair and her jaw was wired shut? <laughs> what good is she then? And, and like, and, and both her hands are in casts. All right, so she's in a wheelchair. Her jaw is wired shut. Both of her hands are in casts, and so are her feet. I mean, my precious, my precious has just been the 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 woman that I loved has been. She's not the woman I loved anymore. She's she's a different creature. Like everything that she's good at has now been removed from her capable hands. But more importantly, taken from you. Take it from me. What about yeah. my feelings? What about what I enjoy? Yeah. Bro, I got to say, there's a certain theme in your conversation tonight. Is this spring? Is this spring stirring in your breast, bro? You mean the, the theme about vulnerability and how we're all vulnerable? <clears throat> well, there's a certain erotically charged uh, content you, you're bringing when you hit me with. It starts it off with wanking and raw dogging. And <laughs> I don't know why you think that. I'm what, talking why do about I bring this out of you? vulnerability, <laughs> man. I'm talking about emotional vulnerability. But yeah, like any one of us could get kicked in the balls. That's like a high, highly vulnerable thing. Bro, I called in to talk about banking. <laughs> you know what I mean? So, so you want? You think we need? What what's the upshot of this uh, latest banking crisis? You want more government regulation? You want? Uh, more restrictions on on how many you know funds that banks have to keep keep around to you know have available for depositors uh is the problem that our bankers are too work what, what's going on well uh a i don't know i honestly don't know what the proper amount of reserves are for a bank you know it's you know it's i'm not one of these people that reads a tweet you know who reads a tweet by somebody smart and thinks he knows you know i don't know um um yeah i'm saying because uh, i don't know and in fact that's one of the greatest things i've learned from your show luke is to really acquaint myself with the phrase i don't know and this is one of those cases you know i do just viscerally this whole idea of bankers being subsidized by the government is just very repulsive but upon calmer reflection it may in fact have been the right thing to do i don't know now how does following the news affect your happiness levels and mental health because you are a man who believes in things elliot blatt you are a man who stands for things you are a man who sees right and wrong and if the heavens fall you are still the type of man who is willing to stand up and and say there is right and there is wrong and this is wrong so when someone has strong opinions, strong views, strong moral values, strong convictions like you do, it must be incredibly painful, not just to mix in a multicultural society where people have all sorts of different hero systems, but even to follow the news, the news is going to be a constant barrage of assaults on your hero system. So do you end up feeling like a potted plant that's just been drenched by Harvey Weinstein? <laughs> yeah, I had to slip that in there. <clears throat> um, excuse me. Um, 
I have learned through painful experience to what is the serenity prayer? Um, oh, to uh, thank God, um, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, courage yeah. to change the things I can. Yes. And the wisdom. And I, I realize I can just change very little. I can be annoyed, but as soon as I feel it like um, kind of reaching into my my mood, you know, as soon as I feel it affecting my mood, uh, I sort of treat that as a signal to just stop, you mm -hmm. know, you know, like, and then I recognize, you know, I'm, there's a lot of things that happen in life I don't like, and this is just another one of them. And then I try to just move to something productive and creative. Okay. So let's talk about how we go crazy when we watch the news. So this this is i used to be a lot more triggered by the news than i think i am now but part of my problem was i would overestimate my own ability to change things in, in the world and in the news so that's where i've gone wrong is that have you had that problem or have you always had a pretty accurate sense of your own ability to affect the world well with <clears throat> i used to be pretty turned off not or just tuned out of the news and then with facebook and with social media generally and being confronted with other people's opinions, it gave me a real easy way to express my opinions and ultimately get into Facebook fights, you know? And so I started tuning in more intensively and I used to um, get into these little troll matches and these screaming matches on Facebook, thinking that, these conversations were winnable or that um something was there was progress to be made and at least with my set of friends absolutely no progress was made it, it just pushed us apart so uh it was a painful realization and I, I i now feel distanced from a lot of people who i was felt closer to is that true with you yeah, like uh, almost all relationships wax and wane, ex except for, for familiar ones. They tend to be the most uh, steady. So I, I think I went uh, 14 years without seeing my brother. And, you know, we just picked right up between 2000 and 2014. So, yeah, de definitely relationships uh, wax and wane. Here's another problem that I've had with the news. I have consistently overestimated the importance of news. Right. I had to get older to realize that so much of the news is trivial and is, is hype or is lying. Uh, so have you had this struggle overestimating the importance of the news? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I thought we've talked about this a lot before. Uh, you know, I was obsessed with the, the election. You know, I, I lost yeah. my mind during the 2020 election. I, so, yeah, I was obsessed. I, I couldn't. Every tweet, everything I read, I read through the lens of how does this impact the election, etc. You know, it was a tough way to live. And uh, I got wrapped up in it in a way that I surprised me. And it all stemmed from the fights because I had like this personal investment in this election. I wanted to see my quote unquote friends or my internet interlocutors suffer. I, it, there was a certain vindictive quality. I actually wanted to win and I wanted to see... Uh, see my friends suffer so that's what arguing will do after a while disagreements will yeah 
yeah. they'll grow. They become cancerous yeah. over time. Yeah, yeah. I would notice that following the news would deepen my pathologies because if I was right about the news and other people around me were wrong, I'd feel superior to them. Or if I was wrong about the news and other people around me were right, I would feel inferior to them. So either way, I'd either feel grandiose or I'd feel bad. Uh, neither really helped me. Uh, so I'd get either overly inflated or I'd get deflated. I would identify too strongly with winning or I'd identify too strongly with losing, depending on the news. And I would, I would uh, be voluntarily giving up much of my identity to you know, bigger entities than myself in the news uh, rather than focusing on my own life. My, my therapist said to me, are you so passive? Are you so uh, extreme in your politics because you're so passive in your life? And I thought, wow, that's a, that's a very painful but important insight. Yeah, and I, I I've noticed that by by tapering back, I'm and then by tapering, I I mean almost down to zero. This sort of Facebook, uh, social media, news, debate frenzy, tweeting stuff. By not doing any of that, I have more time to do other things like my little side project, which I'm actually very pleased with because it's. It feels like something tangible in the world that I've done. That's that's not a not an absolute failure. <laughs> now I was just thinking about that. Isn't it incredibly risky for you to have an employee? Like you're just multiplying your vulnerabilities, and yes. it doesn't sound like you're getting that much out of it. Yes, yes, this was a learning experience. I think I've got the situation contained now. Um, I don't want to go into the details of it, but right. But uh, you can I, you can pull out at any time. Yeah, you're not well, about to yeah. just like blow your whole load on this. Yeah, but the the <clears throat> I can understand why wages are low, right? Because you if you have if you hire somebody in the classical sort of you know W two sense, you have to pay them. Um, you have to pay them. You literally have to pay them, right? And you have to pay them what you agreed to. You have to honor that agreement. And if they, you know, don't perform, you still have to pay them, right? And, um, and if they really don't perform and you have to fire them, they can sue you, right? So um, it's just a huge amount of risk and a huge amount of headache. And, uh, you know, I just didn't realize the amount of risk an employee, employer was taking on. And it just makes me... Um, like, you know, I just have a new profound, more profound respect for true entrepreneurs that, that hire people. Yeah. It's tough being the boss, man. Heavy is the head, heavy, heavy is the head that wears, that, that wears the crown, my dude. Yes. And, and so you can understand why bosses want to control things such as making sure there's not, you know, sexual harassment going on in the workplace because that makes them vulnerable. Yeah. So Gunnar, who is this Gunnar Lindblom? Is he, is he, is this healthy or is this someone no, else? No, no, it's um, uh, ultra testosterone. Oh, I thought that was healthy. <laughs> Maybe it is. Oh, I don't know. Okay. I don't know. Yeah. But, just, but really, yeah. I mean, these, these, everyone in the chat room is really just, you know, one part of ourselves that we're trying to deny. I mean, each of us has a tremendous amount of Ghana Lindblom is to alpha inside of us. And we try yeah. to deny 
that part of ourselves. We try to smash it down. We try to pretend it doesn't exist. We we try to you know live our life as though there's absolutely no part of us that is gonna Lynn Bloom is too alpha. But when we do that, we're living a lie. We're trying to deny our, our shadow. Like every character in this chat is is a significant part of our each of our characters that we have been living in denial about for too long. I agree. Our shadow is deep and real. I mean, these people are simply reminding us of our shadow. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's unfortunate. And, and how, how ludicrous that we all are. I mean, if the, if the camera was turned on you or me, I mean, have you ever had, have, what, what are those, what are those little, um, Oh, oh, those, have you ever had a hemorrhoid Elliot? I think so. Those yeah, are like those, I mean, yeah. you can have a hemorrhoid and then you can start bleeding and it's it's just awful. I mean, you, you can think that you're alpha and that, you know, none of you is gonna Lindblom is, is too, you know, none of you is like gonna Lindblom. But then, like, you, you get up in the morning, you sit on the throne and suddenly you realize you've got a hemorrhoid. And then it, it starts bleeding. It's a dose of humor. It's, it's, it's a very strong dose of humility. And that happens at any time we could get hemorrhoids and stop bleeding and then it starts burning when we pee so is this is this your um i now i i, I i'm sick of doing an intellectual wait. show i am going right. for the howard stern size audience now yeah, i was gonna say this is your jewish identity you know is this, this how you're expressing your jewish identity like wasp don't do this generally so if you completely I'm just going for the high audience numbers right now. I'm like, okay, I've been producing this elevated, highbrow, intellectual show for too long. Let's just go for the numbers. So right now I've got 17 on YouTube. I've got nine right now on Rumble. I've got one on Odyssey. I mean, I'm just packing them in, man. This is the type of, of high energy content that people flood this show for. Um. I don't know. Gunner's accusing me of being triggered. I, I'm just, you know, I know what it's like to you, but you know, I remember when I used to badger you in the chat. It's it's actually quite annoying. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, getting, I'm getting what I deserve. <laughs> everything comes back to you. That's what that's the key lesson. If I have any lesson whatsoever, it's any everything ultimately always comes back to you. There's no escape. We live in a net, we're all sewn together invisibly. And you can't punch without being punched. It's just, uh, it's a zero-sum game. You can't get ahead. You can't fall behind. We're all in an iron cage together, and we're all sewn together through an invisible web of moral consequence. Yeah, it's like no man is an island entire of itself. Like every man is a piece of the continent, a part of the main. Like if a clod be washed away by the sea, Europe is the less, as well as if a promontory were as well as any manner of thy friends or of thine own were. Any man's death diminishes me because I am involved in mankind, and therefore never send to know for whom the bell tolls, Elliot Blatt. It tolls Boy. for thee. Yikes, Luke, the wealth of poetry that you have beneath that yarmulke is impressive. I'm really getting into John Donne. I just, I'm so <laughs> proud. I read a whole book on John Donne over the weekend, and I've yeah. read a book and a half on HBO. So there are two on books HBO, on the network. Yeah, yeah, the network. So, about, 
There are two two new books on HBO, and I read one entirely, and one I'm about twenty percent through. I remember I'm old enough to remember when HBO was relatively new, and it was like a premium feature at a motel. And yeah, remember was... the Hitchhiker? Remember the Hitchhiker. HBO show, The Hitchhiker? It would have mm-hmm. like tits on it, and I ended up interviewing the producer of that show. It was like one of the first, I think it was the first original dramatic uh, series that was on HBO. You know, and, I, I grew up with... You could call the show, the nickname for the show was Fuck a Stranger. <laughs> Fuck a Stranger and Get Killed. I think that was... Uh, that's amazing, Luke. Your resume is impressive. Do you remember, do you remember like when motels would have their sign out there and they would have HBO? Yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> and then every, before you know it, everybody had HBO. But I grew up in the country. I didn't have not only did I not have HBO, but I didn't even have cable. I had like but two and a half stations growing up. Don't don't hotels still advertise this? I mean, they do in Australia. They advertise Foxtel, which is the number one cable provider. So if mm-hmm. the hotel says it's got Foxtel, it means there are like you know sixty different channels. You can get Fox News, the History Channel, uh, CNN. You know, you can get everything. Hey, look, why am I the only one that calls in, man? What's going on? I'm trying to like, you know, what? I I would say that the bond that we have can't fully be explicated. In fact, by trying to explicate it, it diminishes what we have. But I've been badgering some of these regulars to come on because I want to, I like to hear people's voices, you know, and like, I want to match their writing style to their voice and, I just, I think once you've been in a chat for every year, I think you're obligated to call it. Can you make that rule? Or is that not uh, that's, uh, so, I would, I would love more people calling in. The uh, chat says Luke Ford is a 2023 wasp, 19, not a 1920s wasp. Oh, interesting. Yeah. But they don't but, make wasp like they used to. No. Um, Oh, there was some Seventh Day Adventist thing in the news. It's escaped me. I'll have to remember. Seventh Day Adventist. I'll just look it up on Google News. Yeah, no, it was local. It's very local. It was like local news to me. I, Seventh Day Adventism crossed my radar. I'm trying to remember. Oh, here we go. I trusted the call. Says first female Seventh Day Adventist pastor, Michelle Hill. She has been commissioned to lead a Seventh-day Adventist church in Bermuda. Mm. Now, is there, anything the you, is there anything you miss about Seventh-day Adventism? The, the women. The women? The, the women are pretty and they're nurturing. I, 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 I've never slept with a Seventh-day Adventist woman. Mm. They've got that wholesome vibe about them. Yeah, I'd love to like... They're, they're trad. Yeah make tender love to a Seventh-day Adventist woman with like posters of Ellen G. White on the wall and like, you know, the desire of ages and, you know, all the great Ellen G. White literature, you know, just kind of stacked up all around us and, you know, posters of general conference presidents like Neil Wilson, the man who ejected my father from the church. You know, I'd love to have that all around while I make, you know, tender, tender love to a Seventh-day Adventist maiden. Is that bad? Okay, I can't judge you for that. Now, did you have what's his name? What, what is your father's name? Is his name Wilson? Something. Uh, Neil Wilson was the Seventh Day Adventist General Conference president who ejected my father Desmond Ford from the church ministry. 
So did you have a, like a little target of him and it's, you have his picture in the middle of a target in the middle of your living room? And you don't take no, but I did take it, it personally when I was 14 and my father got ejected. I did, I did, uh, I did take it personally. Like I, I, I got kind of a little upset about it. Did he have the sole power I was there. to do that? I was there at the, the, the whole week long hearing in, in Denver, Colorado. Sorry. Oh, so he was it a committee decision that he led the charge or did uh, he he was a much more savvy political player than my father so my father was a a scholar at least in his own mind uh my father considerably overestimated his own importance to the church his own power base within the church and neil wilson was an administrator and a very canny political player and so neil wilson pulled the strings and got my father ejected. And so my father went from being Seventh-day Adventist rock star to someone who would preach before 15 people instead of 1,500. It sounds like a Project Veritas situation. Uh, uh, no one dressed up like a pimp. No, I, I missed that part of the story. Um, What's his name? I forgot his name. I blanked his name. The founder of Veritas. James O'Keefe. Yeah, O'Keefe. So, so, did you ever cover that story? Um, I don't. I don't remember you talking about it. That's kind of a, no. it was in a similar situation where, like these, you know, it was becoming a powerful organization. The money started was really flowing in, and they, there was, you know, some sad, some board members figured out that they could get a bigger piece if they got rid of James. That's how I interpreted it, but I didn't read the details. I just made some guesses. I mean, I've read enough about James O'Keefe. It sounds like he's behaved deplorably and he's kind of raided the finances. And uh, I'm sure he's a man of great talent. And also you you give people, you know, particularly single men, you know, money and access to women and female employees. It would be, it'd be hard to keep your pants on. Well, but look at it from his perspective, you know, Um, here he is. He's breaking big stories. He's got a lot of high power, high powered enemies, right? He's got a complex organization that needs to be run. And he just wanted to release a little steam. Yeah, in a way. Yeah, I think, like I said, like the earlier conversation is being an employer. He had a lot more pressure to deal with. People only talk about just because you're leading an organization doesn't mean you're not human and you're not fallible. Like he had to shoulder a much larger burden than anybody else. And so to sort of poke holes at him for, you know, just because he likes musical theater doesn't make him a bad man. I didn't even hear that part of the story. Yeah. He loves musical theater. Yeah. So so what? I mean, it doesn't make him a bad man. We don't judge people just because they, like musical theater and they like dressing well doesn't make them bad just because yeah, they have dramatic personalities yeah sensitive all right I, i'm gonna read bad. up on it i'm trying to tie it to the other point about heavy as a head that wears the crowns just it's pressure leading an organization and it's pressure having enemies right enemies eat at you even when they're not there just thinking about them drains your energy right yeah. And uh, 
uh, I don't know. I have I have a new respect for ex- the executive role. Maybe this is the lesson I needed to learn. Yeah, because it's so easy to just hate your boss, right? It's the right. easiest feeling in the world. Right. But it's hard, you know, having empathy for your boss because then you can no longer feel so righteous and and like the world becomes a much more complicated place when you start having empathy for for bosses. Right. You wake up, the last thing you want to do is go to work, right? Yes. And they represent that thing that you hate, you know? And so you get to transfer all of your uh, dissatisfaction with your own life onto this one picture, one feature, uh, figure. And it's, it's neurotic. It's not, it's not healthy. So and, think- and effectively, when you're at work, you're a slave, right? 40 hours a week in a normal job, you're a slave. Like you do what you're told. Yeah. Yeah. And that was like in this office I, I worked in 10 years ago, it was sort of known among, um, so the company was, was headquartered in England. So a lot of the, man, you know, the management staff is from England, a lot of the executives for, from England. And they had to be very carefully instructed not to act like they do in England because San Franciscans will just leave. <laughs> Wow, how how so? Tell me more. Well, yeah. Well, this is a time. It was a boom time, for one thing. But you know, a lot of so the the, the management structure was very top down. It wasn't this casual sort of uh-huh. show up in cargo shorts and chit chat. And right. uh, they had like management styles that were more traditional. More traditional, you know. It's not a suit and tie, but definitely dress clothes and, you know, a button-up shirt and these sort of compulsory meetings that didn't serve any purpose other than sort of reinforce the hierarchy, you know, just little cultural mismatches that they, that were perfectly natural to them, right, To, to the, to the management staff but just rubbed everybody the wrong way. And it was just so funny. They had to have, they had like six people always trying to hire. They're always hiring people because people were leaving so often. And I eventually did leave. Suddenly. In first of rage. Yeah. Okay, great to talk to you. All right. All right. Thanks, man. Blessings. Talk soon. All right, blessings. Take care. Bye-bye. Yeah. Okay. You're probably wondering what the hell is going on. In the Australian news Australians media. are this morning being warned we could be at war with China within the next three years. Nine Federal Politics reporter Reese D'Alessandro has the details. Reese, it's a pretty dire prediction. Hello, I'm Paul Barry. Welcome to Media Watch. And it's dire, all right. Seems World War Three is on the way. Because there it was, screaming out of the front page of the Age and Sydney Morning Herald on Tuesday in the first of an alarming three-part series. With the two papers chorusing... Australia Australia faces the real prospect of a war with China within three years that that could involve a direct attack on our mainland. That warning of imminent attack came with a comic book sketch of jets flying out of red China to bomb Australia. So, who was sounding the air raid alarm? A panel of five science and security experts assembled by the nine papers and by international editor Peter Harcher, who is a well-known China hawk. And featuring Peter Jennings, who's made a habit of predicting that conflict with China is coming. Jennings told readers... 
It really is all about China, China, China. And he added, This is not about 10 to 20 years. It's really three years. There was no contrary view and no shading of the possibilities. And the official sounding communique from the expert panel warning of war over Taiwan was just as definitive. We believe Australia faces the prospect of armed conflict in the Indo-Pacific within three years. The most serious risk is a Chinese attack on Taiwan that sparks a conflict with the US and other democracies, including Australia. All in all, it was extraordinary stuff, and it was instantly slammed by Paul Keating as... The most egregious and provocative news presentation of any newspaper I have witnessed in over 50 years of active public life. With the former PM and China Dove adding... The extent of the bias and news abuse is, I believe, unparalleled in modern Australian journalism. Paul Keating has always been good for a killer turn of phrase, but on the Today Show, Nine's Chris O'Keefe went in just as fast and almost as hard. But the reporting this morning is hysterical. Now, if you've got the Australian... OK, so I would, I would argue that the chance of Australia, the United States and China going to war over Taiwan is non-trivial in the next three years. I, I would put it as probably as high as 25%. So a 10 to 25% chance of, of war with China over, over Taiwan, right? That's non-trivial. Strategic Policy Institute, who are the ones saying, oh, well, we could be going to war in three years. Well, they're, they're funded by the Australian Defence Force, mm. Lockheed Martin, TALUS and Boeing. On Twitter, rival defence and China experts also lined up to give the claims a kicking with Professor Nick Bisley from La Trobe University tweeting, It's irresponsible journalism, hyperbolic scholarship, and the three-year timeline at odds with any serious analysis of... No, I don't think it is that, that at odds with any serious analysis of the People's Republic of China, its interest capabilities and incentives. Right? There's a real chance of war over Taiwan in the next three years. Of PRC interests, capabilities and incentives... And Tom Corbyn from the US Studies Centre was keen to point out schoolboy errors in this graphic of how the warring sides line up. This is simply inaccurate. The Philippines is a US treaty ally. Singapore is not. Guam and Diego Garcia are territories, not allies. And how did the nine papers make those mistakes? Seems they pinched the map from this German 2018 article on mounting tension in Asia, but added the errors themselves. Whoops. So, do all defence and China experts think China will invade Taiwan within three years and war is inevitable? Certainly not. The ANU's Professor John Blacksland told 2GB Drive... No, I don't. And that's because... And the chat says if Australia is America's puppet, then they will line up with the US. Well, Australia is a relatively small nation. They have to line up with somebody. And when you line up with somebody and you get protection from a much bigger power, that means that, yes, you do have to fall in line. So every time America's gone to war, Australia's gone to war with America, not necessarily out of altruism or out of, you know, a similar ideological commitment, but that is the price of a tight alliance with America, right? America protected and saved Australia in World War II. America's nuclear umbrella has spread over Australia since World War II. And there's a price for that. And the price is that when America goes to war, Australia does have to also. There's too much to lose.
and it's also not China's MO. And plenty of other strategic experts, including US spy chief Avril Haines, agree that China is a threat, but they don't believe it wants war over Taiwan. And as for it coming within three years, Macquarie University's Adam Lockyer told MediaWatch... Is this possible? Sure. Likely, no. If war came soon, it would be by accident rather than design. We need to be careful not to become hysterically fixated with low likelihood, worst-case scenarios. So, maybe those views got a look in on day two of Red Alert, when the Herald and Age followed up with this. How a conflict over Taiwan could swiftly reach our shores. But no. Instead, we got more alarming predictions from Jennings. Within 72 hours of a conflict breaking out over Taiwan, Chinese missile bombardments and devastating cyber attacks on Australia would begin. For the first time since World War II, the mainland would be under attack. So who is Jennings? He's a former defence official in Canberra who for a decade ran the Australian Strategic Policy Institute, or ASPE, which is funded by the Department of Defence, the US State Department and a bevy of international arms suppliers. And he's long been crying wolf on China, as Sky's Andrew Clonell was quick to point out. We awoke this morning to warnings in the nine newspapers that we're about to be invaded by China. Well, the trouble is one of the experts quoted said three years ago there would be a war in six months. Can this lead to war? Well, I, I think there are a couple of flashpoints in the region, in the South China Sea and Taiwan, uh, which give rise to serious concerns about the prospect for military conflict. In So if China does go to war over Taiwan, it would make sense that they would take out the U.S. military bases that would be used to defend Taiwan, and there's a big U.S. military base in Darwin. So if China does invade Taiwan, you could expect them to send ballistic missiles to blow up the U.S. military base in Darwin, perhaps the U.S. military base in San Diego, as well as bases in Hawaii, uh, Japan, uh, the Philippines, right? So it's not like China would attack, you know, invade Australia necessarily, but it would make sense that China would send ballistic missiles to blow up American military installations all over Australia. Also, all three of the major sea routes to China go by Australia. Two of them go quite close to Australia. So it would make some strategic sense for, for China to want to take over Australia if they could pull that off. And so they've tried to do it through bribery. If that doesn't work, right? If, if you don't accept China's silver, then maybe you'll have to deal with China's lead with its ballistic missiles and armed forces. Months, right? Not years, but in months. Jennings also told the Nine Papers confidently last year, amid concerns about a security deal between China and the Solomon Islands, that Chinese ships and aircraft were likely to arrive in the Solomons within weeks because the deal would absolutely lead to a military base. So when Nine picked Jennings for the panel, they knew what they were getting. And they did not pick anyone who disagreed. As Dr. Breck Stratting, director of La Trobe Asia, told me to watch. It's a shame the journalists didn't bother to seek out comment from experts with deep knowledge of either China or Taiwan. While the experts cover off different fields of knowledge, they are all... OK, you don't need to be a deep expert in China. You don't need to be a deep expert in Taiwan. You need to have a sense of reality and just uh, look at the basic power calculations. So if China takes over Taiwan, they dramatically expand their reach in the Pacific and they strongly incentivize other nations 
in North Asia and South Asia to stop aligning with the US and either become neutral or start aligning with China. So I don't think China's going to attack Taiwan in the next three years. But yeah, I'd say somewhere between you know, maximum 25% likelihood, you know, probably something more like a 10% likelihood. And you don't have to be a China expert because if China attacks Taiwan, it won't be because of something specifically Chinese or Taiwanese, right? It's about nation states have to fight for their survival, just like banks, just like individuals, all right? You know, attractive, you know, vulnerable young woman, you know, goes to a frat party where there's a lot of drinking and, and drugging and, you know, she can get pushed up behind, you know, a locked door. Uh, very likely that something, you know, bad will happen to her. If uh, individuals are fighting for their survival, they're very likely to do bad things. China is getting steadily scrunched by U.S.-led alliances, right? If it feels particularly desperate, it, it may well try to fight its way out of the strangulation that uh, the U.S. is leading against it. Just think about Japan. Uh, Japan was getting squeezed to death by U.S. embargoes in 1940, 1941. And Japan basically had one of two options. One, they could surrender to the United States without a fight, or they could launch an attack on the United States and, and hope to at least salvage some pride, uh, hope that, uh, that there might be some chance that, uh, you know, they get something better than just an abject surrender to the United States without even putting up a fight. The Japanese had too much pride to just abjectly surrender to the United States without putting up a fight, so they put up a fight. China looks like it's falling apart. It uh, may decide not to just abjectly surrender. They may put up a fight. All running the same basic line about the threat China poses to Australia. And foreign relations expert Professor James Curran told Sky, while we certainly should be worried about China's sabre-rattling, the panel's conclusions were scaremongering. What does this group of experts know that most of the Western intelligence community does not? Uh, as I say, it is, of course... You don't have to know classified information. You just have to have a sense of reality, a sense of how great power politics works, and understand what the incentives are. So if... If you put uh, thousands of dollars of cash out, right, and then you, you know, hire maids to come clean your house and you just leave thousands of dollars of cash out, right, the odds are pretty good that these maids are going to start stealing some or all of the money. And so too with China, right, Taiwan's 100 miles away. If China feels like it's in a desperate situation similar to Japan in 1940-41, then it may want to go out with a bang rather than a whimper. Would you rather go out with a bang? Or would you rather go out with a whimper? Would you rather go out on top doing what you do best? Or would you rather go out you know, face down, absorbing what you must absorb? Prudent to prepare for the worst. But we're having this kind of talk of Armageddon with all the visual imagery from the late 19th century uh, that frankly, frankly makes some of the Cold War imagery um, look rather quaint. Day three of Nye's Red Alert focused on what Australia should do to prepare for war, with the panel suggesting we double our defence spending from 40 to $80 billion a year, consider hosting US nuclear missiles on Australian soil and bring back conscription. Cue another chorus of disdain from assorted experts, including the ANU's associate professor, Matthew Sussex. 
China hobbyist and war enthusiast Peter Harcher brings his Red Peril comic strip to a thrilling denouement, suggesting Australia brings back conscription and or hosts nukes. Okay, so all these experts aren't necessarily right. Every single expert, every single Australian expert in America and in American politics said that Donald Trump had no chance of winning the 2016 election, right? Every single American expert in Australia was wrong. Donald Trump obviously won the 2016 election. Sussex told me to watch. Fortunately, Australia has many experts, both outside and inside government, working hard on defence and security strategies that give us the capability to prevent wars. Not right, this is just incredibly naive. Oh, if you just have enough strategies working on enough experts working on strategies to prevent wars. We just need enough experts, guys, working on strategies that give us the capability to prevent wars. Right? Whether or not Australia gets dragged into the war is not something that Australia has much of an influence over. Australia must ally with a greater power than itself. It is long allied with the United States. So if China goes to war to seize Taiwan, Australia will be pulled along. No matter how many thousands of experts that Australia assembles, no matter how hard they work on defense and security strategies that give Australians the capability to prevent wars, right? That's going to have absolutely nothing to do with it, right? All your bloody experts, all your bloody strategies, all your bloody capabilities to prevent wars won't mean a damn thing if China decides to attack Taiwan. You're in it, right? You can't escape from it. You're under America's nuclear umbrella. That comes with a price. The price is China will attack Australia in all likelihood if China decides to take Taiwan, no matter how many hardworking experts, both outside and inside government, Australia assembles, creating defense and security strategies that supposedly give Australia the capability. Australia doesn't have the capability to prevent China from going to war with Taiwan. This is an absurd analysis from Associate Professor Matthew Sussex, a fellow at the Strategic and Defence Research Centre at the Australian National University. Not assume they're inevitable. It's a shame Harcher didn't think to include their voices. Oh. So, what did Harcher and Nine have to say in the face of all this criticism? Essentially, that the risk of war is real, and it's a conversation we absolutely need to have. Or, as the Herald editorial put it, in publishing the Red Alert series, the Herald believes that discussing Australia's preparedness or lack of preparedness for war is responsible journalism and important for democracy. Well, of course, it is responsible to discuss the threat of war with China. But was it discussed responsibly? Many experts on China and defence clearly believe it was not. And that is putting it mildly. Okay, let's uh, wind up today's show with something that we can all agree on. That is the importance to love ourselves and to reparent ourselves. Ooh, I'm here. I'm oh, here. Yeah. And I know you're scared. I know you don't know what to do. But I've got you and I won't leave you. I love you and I'm so sorry that you're scared. But it's okay to feel. It's safe to feel. It's safe to cry. It's safe to move through it. <sighs> mm. You're safe. I've got 
It's safe to cry. I was waiting for someone else to validate my feelings. I can heal my own feelings, my own pain. I always waited for someone else to comfort me. How I need it, but I can comfort myself. Crying is healthy. Till I realize I'm the one that knows exactly what I need and when I need it and how I need it. It's okay to surrender. I love you. It's okay to feel, guys. It's safe to feel. Big hugs. Keep breathing. Love is all around us. Wow, that's powerful. I, I, I can't top that. I better go. Bye-bye.